When was the last time you looked in your closet and thought about all the different colors on the fabrics? In today's world of synthetic dyes, it's easy to buy clothing, curtains, canvas, and all manner of textiles with colors ranging from the mundane to the absolutely gaudy. And that ability to find just the right combination of colors makes it just as easy to forget that that wasn't always the case. For the longest time, if you wanted bright or eccentric colors, you had to find the right natural materials and pay big money for it. These included things like berries, roots, and even insects. Nothing among these highly sought-after dyes was as valuable or influential as the search for a perfect red. After all, as Michel Pastoreau once said, red is the archetypal color, the first color humans mastered, fabricated, reproduced, and broke down into different shades, first in painting and later in dyeing. This has given it primacy over all other colors through the millennia. I'm Aiden Main. Welcome to Haunting Historia. Red is an extremely powerful color. It evokes emotions ranging all across the scale of positive and negative. Anger, jealousy, blood, and by extension, death. Contrasted with passion, love, and life. No wonder, then, that it has been used since the dawn of time in just about every creative outlet that we as humans have come up with. Cave paintings that have survived are often shown being drawn with reds present. No other color packs the same punch in a painting, regardless of the intended effect, as a good splash of red. So, when ancient colors began to adorn themselves with color, red naturally found itself toward the top of everyone's list. One of the biggest reasons for this was less about color psychology and more about the acquisition of such dyes. Back in the days before the 19th century, pigments were derived from naturally occurring things. Certain of these sources for dyes were so rare that they became worth more than the average person living in those times could afford. One specific example, purple dyes, largely came from an area of the Phoenician culture in what would be Lebanon today. They created their magnificent purple pigments using a particular sea snail known as Bolinus brandaris, found only in the city of Tyre. Dye makers would crack open the shell of the snail and find a purple mucus that they then let sit in the sun for a very specific amount of time until it became ready to mix. Supposedly, it took 250,000 mollusks for them to obtain just one ounce of usable dye. But the Tyrian purple, as it became known, was so vibrant and long-lasting that demand for it skyrocketed. So rare and expensive was this purple that it cost more than a year's wages for anyone but the fabulously wealthy. Before long, royalty and the color purple became practically synonymous. 
where purples were only for the uber-rich, shades and hues of reds held varying places depending on the region and century. But there was one overarching problem with all of the European dyes that they came up with. Most produced a lackluster shade of red, and those that were more vibrant lasted for a short time before fading. For centuries, Europeans favored the roots of a plant called Rubia tinctorum, or matter root. The red produced from matter was rich and still highly valued, but it left much to be desired. The race to find a deeper, longer-lasting dye was on. Little did they know that halfway around the world, on a continent that had yet to be discovered by those east of the Atlantic, cultures had been using a brilliant red dye for between 1500 or 1200 years, depending on the region. With the arrival of Columbus in 1492, the secret of the Aztecs and Mayans was about to get out. Fun side fact. When Cortez landed in Mexico in 1519, he ordered his men to burn the ships they had arrived on. He did this to send a very clear, very aggressive message. There is no going back. We will succeed or we will perish. Hernán Cortez had been sent by the Spanish king to conquer the New World, and by extension, the Aztec Empire. He and his men were on a mission to find the kinds of resources that all Europeans were desperate to get their hands on at the time. That is to say, gold, silver, and a new trade route to China. But one other substance had caught the eye of King Charles V of Spain. Just one year earlier, in 1518, a new dye substance had been introduced to the world at large. It was called cochineal, and Charles wanted more. By the time Cortes finished his conquest two years later, completely decimating the Aztec Empire, Spain had a near-global monopoly on the dye. So precious was cochineal that they leaked false rumors and tips to other Europeans in an effort to keep them from acquiring their own sources. For 200 years, it was believed that cochineal came from plant seeds found in Mexico and Peru. If you've ever been to the deserts of the Southwest United States or Mexico, you may have seen a great number of cacti. There are so many different types of cacti, from the mighty and tall saguaro, to the short and stout golden barrel, and all manner of types in between. One type of cactus, called the prickly pear, is the home to a type of tiny insect so small you could easily never know they were there at all. The scientific name for these insects is Dactylopius caucus, but most simply refer to them as the cochineal insect. Female cochineals are only 5 millimeters long, roughly 0.2 inches, while the males have one pair of fragile wings and are much smaller. 
Through the process of living and reproducing while munching on the juices of their host cactus, cochineals produce a white, waxy substance that give the cactus a look as if it is covered in cotton fluff. Cochineal harvesters brush these little insects off the cactus, gathering them in a wide-mouthed bowl. The insects are then spread out to dry in the harsh heat of the desert sun. Typically, only female cochineals are gathered, as the males tend to live only long enough to fertilize the eggs and are drastically outnumbered by females regardless. They sit in the sun for four or five days until they are shriveled and dead. This was a very important step, but it meant that the cochineals lost about a third of their weight in the process. It took 70,000 dried insects to produce just over one pound of dye. Despite how fragile cochineal insects were and how hard it was to produce the dye they made, cochineal red was a highly sought-after product. Long before the Spanish conquistadors arrived, cochineal farmers could trade their dyes for all manner of goods, such as fish, maize, and salt. Moctezuma I even went so far as to levy an annual tribute of the dye stuff during the 15th century. And though Spain had very few of their own skilled tradesmen who knew how to use it, cochineal became Mexico's second most valuable export after silver. They sold the dye to Italian textile experts, who began experimenting with it. At first, Europeans were skeptical. They couldn't believe that their traditional Kermes and Armenian reds could be bested by something that came from the barbaric New World. But after a number of trials involving a comparison of silk dyed with cochineal prepared in three different ways, they were forced to admit that this new substance produced fabrics with as good, if not deeper, reds. What's more, the carminic acids of the cochineal insects, which makes the vibrant red possible, was not hindered by the fatty lipids of the plump Armenian insects, allowing the fibers to fully absorb the color. Cochineal's other advantage over the other reds of the age was that it could be harvested several times a year, yielding a higher rate of production. Spain, whose royal coffers had been embarrassingly empty, had stumbled their way into what would be one of the hottest commodities in Europe for the next couple hundred years. Red dye stuffs, with their bright splash of color and expensive nature, became the symbol of status in Europe. Charles V influenced a wide range of the European social elite, and everything he did, or didn't do, was noted. He began to wear all black with a white neck ruff, a style that he is still known for today. But from a distance, the rich feared that their all-black clothing would be confused for garments no different than those worn by the poor. To combat this, they incorporated swaths of red into their outfits. Elizabeth I, after her rise to the throne of England, wore subdued colors such as blacks, peaches, ash, and whites. She offset this by dressing her handmaids in red 
to further boost the calmer tones of her own clothing. In short, by the 1600s, cochineal demand was at an all-time high. Spies tried to infiltrate the Spanish colonies in Mexico in an effort to discover just where exactly the dye originated, and, more importantly, how they might replicate it. Unfortunately for these missions of espionage, cochineal insects can die incredibly easily. One bad rain can wipe out an entire colony, which is why they only thrive in the warm, dry climates of Oaxaca and the surrounding regions. Even when someone managed to get their hands on a prickly pear cactus laden with cochineals, the insects very rarely survived the journey to wherever they were sent. Those that did failed to produce the kinds of numbers that were needed to make a decent quantity of the dye. Eventually, Spain's hold on their monopoly of cochineal would be broken, as happens with nearly every monopoly. Too long living under the inflated prices, someone, or a group of someones, will invariably find a way to produce a cheaper or better product. And cochineal was no different. Stick around until after the break to hear all about it. This episode of Haunting Historia was written and produced by me, Aidan Main, with music by John Bjork. Big news, in honor of starting season two and bringing you an all new selection of stories from the past, I will be creating brand new social media profiles for you to interact with me in the show. I've already created a new Twitter profile dedicated to all things Haunting Historia, where you can stay up to date on all things HH. There will be an Instagram, and possibly even TikTok, where I'll be teasing new episodes and fun stories that are too short for their own episode, but no less deserve to be told. Meet me there, on Twitter, at HHistoriaPod, and be on the lookout for more down the road. If you love the show and want to support it, search Haunting Historia on Patreon, and take advantage of the different options. And as always, if you have a story from history that you think should be told, reach out at my email, stories at hauntinghistoria.com or through the contact form on hauntinghistoria.com. Necessity is the mother of all invention. That proverb, attributed to ancient Athenian philosopher Plato, is a simple but effective way of saying that the driving force behind moving forward through invention is a need. Although, sometimes, the need that is prompting experimentation is entirely different to the invention that gets discovered. A prime example of this comes in the form of the slinky. Naval engineer Richard Jones was attempting to come up with a meter to monitor power on board battleships in 1943, when one of the tension springs he worked with fell off the table. The spring bounced back and forth where it landed, and the rest, as the cliche goes, is history. Likewise, William Henry Perkin worked in his lab 
1856 on a substance that he hoped would become an anti-malarial drug. He was using aniline, a compound that is commonly found in coal tar. Through his experiments, he obtained something called black precipitate, which, when tested with alcohol, produced a rich purple color that could dye silk. As I talked about earlier this episode, one of the biggest problems with natural dyes is that they fade over time, especially if they are subjected to the sunlight. But Perkins' purple remained steadfast over other dyes used in those days. There are even examples of his original tests that have survived to today that have remained the brilliant purple he created. Perkin patented his synthetic dye and worked toward manufacturing it on a larger level. The dye sold so well in France that he named it Mauve. This man revolutionized the industry, proving that chemical experimentation and manufacturing could yield incredible results. Before long, synthetic dyes caught the attention of the likes of Queen Victoria and the French Empress Eugenie. It didn't take long after Perkins' mauve became a sensation for other synthetic colors to hit the market. But while cochineal exports took a huge hit, it wasn't the end of their use in products. Today, cochineal is still used to bring a strong, vibrant red to things, and there's a chance you use it. Cochineal goes in to create red dyes E120 and Natural Red 4. What do they do? Natural, cruelty-free food colorings and lipstick. If you enjoyed this episode, then I invite you to please like and comment. And if you don't want to miss a single episode, feel free to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Haunting Historia exists to tell the stories that don't often get told. So follow along every week as I bring you another tale from the overlooked parts of our past. If history is important, it's important to get it right. Richard Helmholtz.